This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. SJ, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks, Cheryl. Uh, I'm super excited about this conversation. So, SJ Norman is a First Nations artist, writer and curator based between Sydney and New York. Their art has been commissioned by the Biennale of Sydney, Performance Space New York and National Gallery of Australia, amongst others. SJ's writing has received critical acclaim, including the Kill Your Darlings Unpublished Manuscript Award. Their latest book, Permafrost, is a fascinating and haunting collection of short stories. Now, I'm going to say this, SJ, I've been doing a little bit of research around you and reading your biography, I realised that I don't do enough in a day. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Do you sleep? <laughs> I, I actually don't sleep. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a chronic, I'm a chronic insomniac and have been my whole life. Mm. Um, well, and I, I think insomniac. I do sleep. I just sleep. I, very, I, I keep very peculiar hours. I do think that insomniacs and people that don't sleep are more productive and more creative, I think, than those of us that, like me who sleep nine, ten hour day, <laughs> nine, ten hour nights. I don't I'm, sleep I'm, in the I'm day. really working. I'm really working on improving my sleep hygiene. I, I really, I quite like being up early in the morning. Um, <laughs> like I, def, I definitely, How many times I definitely in your life? feel like a more productive person I, at all. Be honest, how many times in your life have you woken up early? Tell me that. Look, I actually used to work as a baker. Oh, wow. So I I spent the better part of a decade living in Germany and one of my many jobs when I was there was I I did a lot of kitchen work and, yeah, I worked as a baker on and off for years. Now, you're not going to know this, but I am a sourdough home baker. Oh, there you go. We've got that in common. Yeah. Look, go. I never really mastered sourdough. You um, no, it was I wasn't I wasn't so much I was I did more sweet stuff. Right. Uh, the, the various places that I worked at were more sort of cake rather than bread focused. Right. Wow. Um, yeah. I'm imp- I'm even more impressed now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, so that was a lot of early mornings. I was a, I was a short order breakfast yes. book for a while too, but those those jobs always have a <laughs> limited yeah, shelf life for me because I am I'm a pretty committed night owl. Yeah. Yeah, and the hard work. I mean, standing on your feet in a hot kitchen is not easy. Now, take me right back. Take me to where you grew up. And how it, how it is that now I know it's a long story because you, you you know you're doing so much and I want to hear about everything you've done but how you came to writing how I came to writing um, so go right back where did you, where did you grow up I grew up moving around a lot all oh, right yeah it's a it's a it's a complicated question to answer you know I I was I was born in Warang I was born in Sydney I was born in the old Burke Street Hospital in Darlinghurst oh wow yeah um, which is where my my brother was born as well but that was back in the 60s when it was an unmarried mother's home, which is, that's a whole other story that that my mother wrote a book about, actually. Um, uh, but that's a side note to this story. Uh, so I, I was I was born in Warang, I was born in Sydney, 
And I sort of, I lived here till I was about, I think I was about five and um, moved around different parts of Sydney and sort of had, had connections to different parts of Sydney. And then uh, I moved with my mother to Canada for a minute. And oh, wow. On Coast Salish Territory in Vancouver for about a year and a half or two years, I think. Mm-hmm. And then came back to Sydney, lived sort of down south in the Southern Highlands on Gunnagara Darwal country as well for a minute through most of my sort of early, early teens. And then came back to Warang, came back to Sydney when I was about 17. And um, then... Going I back to your early well. teens, were you a reader? Were you, like, did you notice at that age that the creativity and the storytelling coming out? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think I that that has been my my reality for as long as I can remember. And that's certainly, yeah, I've, I've never not made stuff. Uh, I've never not made mm-hmm. stuff. And from from very 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 early childhood i think and any any one of my numerous caretakers would say would say the same and i think i started i started writing i mean look there there are i had a couple of other people that took care of me in various capacities when when i was a kid and when my both my parents were working a lot and one of them wonderful woman called Nicola Billing, who I'm weirdly still in contact with to this day, looked after me when I was a little baby. And there are, she reminded me in a, in a brief Facebook chat that we had a few months ago of um, some documents, some, some transcriptions of stories that I, um, that I dictated to her when I was about three or four. Oh, wow. So I was writing fiction from, from the age of about <laughs> Three or four, there is document, there is documentation of this happening. But you know, all kids are creative. That's nothing unusual. I think it's just like I was, I was fortunate uh, in many ways to have adults in my life who encouraged that, and I guess in many ways also uh, creativity and, and writing in particular were survival strategies for me, and and remain so. To this and do you think, because you just told me that your mother um, has written, do you think that, that that writing is in the family? Do you think that that's partly why you have that skill? Um, look, it's hard to, that's a hard question to answer. Yeah. Um, my mother is an Indigenous woman with a, with a very, with a story and, and she wrote a book about it. And oh. my father is, um, my father's English and He's, my father is very much a reader, like very, very, very bookish and, and very, yeah, very, very passionate about books and, and quite a, um, an imaginative Piscean. And so uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that writing is in the family. You know, both of my parents grew up very working class. They, you know, I, it's complicated. It wasn't, it wasn't an option. A creative path wasn't really an option for either of my parents, you know, in terms of the way they were raised. And uh, maybe writing could have been in the family if that was something that had been made available to any of the people who raised me. Yeah. Do you know, I think that about my parents sometimes I've never articulated it like you have, because my parents were immigrants. They're Lebanese Australian and they came to Australia in their fifties. And you, 
because immigration is such a big deal, right, and, you know, raising six children is such a big deal and raising kids, any amount of kids, I guess, I wonder whether they reach their potential. Those people that had to move, that experienced hardship, that, you know, they came to a country with absolutely no English. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's yeah, I hear that totally and I think there's... There's a lot of overlap between migration experiences and the experiences of, of a lot of mob, of a lot of blackfellas, you know, mm. in this country. It's something that I that I talk about a lot, honestly, with other other friends of mine who come from diasporic mm. backgrounds and what it is to be the first generation X, Y, Z, you know, like mm. Mm. Uh, first generation out of poverty, first generation, it's, mm. you know, like it's um, there's a, mm. a very particular kind of cultural pressure that can come with that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've noticed too, and obviously with not all migrants and you would know the same, but I feel that our parents wanted us to be better off because they were so worse off in a way, if you like. I mean, we had a great life and everything. I'm, I'm painting a darker picture than what it is, but it was different to the people around me that were born here. It was different. to Yeah, absolutely. To yeah. And yeah. I feel as those people didn't have that. They didn't have what we had, what my parents so desperately wanted for us. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a very particular experience and, um, I sort of I think about this a lot in terms of class identity and class politics, right? Mm. Yeah, you know, I didn't grow up poor by any stretch of the imagination. I mm. like, I grew up well resourced, more or less, or with a with a with a relatively complex class identity, I guess, because mm. you know m- my upbringing was kind of anomalous in terms of the the broader context of my family mm. on both sides, but particularly on my mother's side. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but at the same time, I think it's there's a really there's a big difference between white generational wealth and and uh and migrant wealth or or you know the, the emerging aboriginal middle class you know it's a, it's a you grow up with as you say like a sense of being um I, I mean i don't i don't i did have definitely didn't have the experience of being pushed by my parents in the same way that a lot of my friends who come from migrant backgrounds it doesn't have the same quite the same flavor mm-hmm. um but there is certainly a very strong sense that you have a responsibility to, uh, oh, what am I trying to say? Um, no, I, I hear you. Do you know, I was you, have a, you have a sense of responsibility to living up to your ancestral expectations. Yes, exactly. You know? um, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I interviewed an author recently and he was not from Australia and he said this line to me. Now, I didn't make a comment at the time because I was trying to be polite and good, but also I, I kind of, it sat with me for days afterwards. Well, you could indeed so it's still sitting with me but he said I don't want to be an expat in this country so he's come from an English-speaking country from the U.S. Mm. I don't want to be an expat in this country I want to be an immigrant yeah and in a way that was like somebody just that being a white person and coming into this you will never have our experience it's not the same Mm. No, I think I think about the difference between those two words a lot. Hey, yeah, um, they're huge, aren't they? They're, they're really huge, and I, I so there's something you know. As I mentioned, I, I lived in in Germany for a long time, and yeah. that was a discussion, you know, particularly in Berlin, which is such an international city. You know, which I, I mean, it's like those. There's something about those words, international city, that just like send a cold chill down my spine. But at the same time, it, it is, you know, it's a, it's a real, it's a space of kind of constant transit and people. Yeah. It's a, it's a very, it's a very particular cultural space. And, you know, there was, uh, and there's, there's been, when, been, 
you know, waves of, of, of migration into, into Berlin specifically over the last, you know, I mean, it's never, it's never been not, not been a part of the character of that place, to be honest, but particularly over the last sort of 10 years or so. And I think about what it means for me, even like, even though I'm an Indigenous person, even though I'm I'm an Aboriginal person, I'm still a person, I'm still an Australian passport holder, you know, (laughs) and I'm still, I'm a British passport holder too, as well. I'm a dual citizen because of my dad. So, you know, I hold these two incredibly powerful passports. And what does it mean for me in a space like Berlin, where my Turkish friends who were born there still don't have German citizenship, you know. Is that right? Yeah, you know, what does it mean? Like, am I an expat? Because that's Mm. gross. But uh, because I don't, I guess, I guess that, I guess maybe, you know, if you're calling yourself an expat, you know, the orientation is still back to the nation of your birth, you know, and the nation of your, you know, it's a different, it's a different relationship to statehood or, you know, if that's a word. Mm. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. You're right. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Hey, listen. Have you spent more time overseas than you have in Australia now? An adult. Yeah. I've, I probably. It's hard to know. I haven't really done. I haven't run the numbers on that no. one. No. <laughs> I, I'm only asking you that because you know I, I was speaking to Peter Carey last year and speak to lots of Australian authors living overseas, and I know that you're not in New York at the moment. You're in Sydney, but I often wonder how they feel about their identity when you're living in another country. I remember I interviewed this wonderful Australian author and her name escapes me at the moment in LA and who'd lived there quite a long time and she was so voraciously, if you like, Australian. She didn't want to let go of any of that, even though her children were now American. And and I wonder how you feel about that. Mm. In my my heart, Mm. there's there's many ways I can answer that question, right? In terms of my internal sense of who I am, I am not and never will be Australian. I'm Aboriginal. Mm. I also have an English father, but I am Aboriginal. You know, mm. I'm Koori specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm probably a southwest, a south, southeastern New South Wales Koori. Mm-hmm. My descendancy is Wiradjuri. So, you know, my, my mother's mob are from central western New South Wales. Though my mum was born in Redfern, so were most of my uncles. You know, there's a, there's a complex story of belonging there, as is the case with a lot of Aboriginal people. Absolutely. Um, I grew up in Glebe, so I was well yeah. aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm Koori. You know, yeah. that's that's who I am. Yeah. But I still, but like I said, I have an Australian passport, mm. and I have all of the global privilege that comes with that. And uh, so there's, in terms of in terms of an Australian identity, I don't really know what that is. I don't know I, when I'm on Turtle Island or I'm in Germany. I still wake up every day and I'm still Curry. You know, <laughs> um, I like even, that. Even though you know, I still I, I've always I've always bilocated between Australia and, and other places because I can't ever not also be here. Um, I get sick if I'm away for too long. I get out of alignment with who I am. <laughs> um, I falter in my responsibilities, you know. So it's it's all it's always it's always a back and forth thing. Never been an option for me as an Aboriginal person to just cut and run mm. <laughs> from my from my sovereign ancestral land, you know. So it's this it's a it's a, a a particular kind of balance that I have to strike in my life between being here and being in other places where I also have responsibilities and where I also have work to do and where I also have a strong sense of home and strong and and communities that I'm a part of and, and people that I call my family. Hold up. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Tell me the journey of your career, and I know there's a lot there, so just kind of run me through it to how you... I don't remember most of it. Um, <laughs> just what you're going to remember then. The journey of my career. So you uh, finished high school. I did finish high school. What did you think you were going to be? Um, I'm the first person in my family to finish high school. I did finish high school by the skin of my teeth, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I sort of... I wrote my first sort of significant piece of long form work in my last year of high school. So I was a four unit English student and uh, I don't even know if four unit English is a thing that exists anymore. Wow. Um, But back in in my day, (laughs) um, if you did four unit English, you wrote a major piece of either critical or creative work. And I wrote an extremely derivative nurse verse novella um, called Open Water, which funnily enough, I later reworked and entered into the Judith Wright Prize for Emerging Poetry. And it, it, it sort of it placed, uh, I think, a highly commended in that prize in maybe oh, wow. 2008 or something. I don't know as right. So your first love in terms of art, because, you know, you've done a few things, but is mm. would you say is books? Would you say... No, Writing? No, no. no. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not monogamously wedded to literature at all. Right. <laughs> I, I actually have, in many ways, quite a fraught relationship with books and writing. Um, not not with writing so much, but with books. Why? Well, look, like the book is a complex and inherently kind of colonial form. You know, the book is an adventure. Is, is an invention of is is a is a specifically Eurocentric invention in terms of. Um, a way of communicating or presenting or transferring knowledge. I have a I have a lot of complex feelings around books and and you know logocentricity and um, and commercial publishing and all of these kinds of things. And in many ways, I think my my strongest my strongest alignments in terms of the the greater field of literature with were much more with poetry than with fiction. Um, I've, I'm honest, it's, it's, it's curious to me that I'm even a fiction writer because I'm not a huge consumer of fiction, to be honest. I mostly read nonfiction and I read experimental nonfiction and, and poetry. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, this, I consume a lot of language-based art, but not, it's not predominantly in book form a lot of the time. I, I'm going to share this and it's a little bit a story that, probably says a lot about me. I was invited to the Bali Ubud Writers Festival a few years back now and I was invited to chair a panel of young readers, like YA segment. Mm. And 
in my ignorance, I mean, I did a lot of research, but I didn't get it until I got there. I walked into a room crowded full of young people and their stories to me wasn't about, was more about that they're the first generation of readers in their family, Mm. that books, that that's not how they grew up that mm. it was just mainly orig- like stories told, mm. not stories written. And so for them to be reading a Harry Potter or whatever, that was the first time in their generation that they had books in yeah. their home. I was so surprised about mm. that. Stupidly, I had, I just wasn't aware of it. Mm. And then I, I know this um, young Sudanese refugee, Majok Tilba, and he told me that when he was in a refugee camp, he loved stories so much. And when he first saw a physical book, he thought the way that it came about was somebody put something on your brain and mm. then the book <laughs> came oh, out. Oh, God. If only it did work like that. <laughs> yeah. Far out. But there so you go. They're cultures. process, writing a book, damn. That's right. But they're cultures uh, that really the book isn't prominent. Mm. It was the story that was prominent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's the key word, right? You know, we talk about all of the ways that story shows up in terms of, you know, I was recently, I, 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 I co-curate uh, an event called Knowledge of Wounds, which is uh, an Indigenous-led, queer and trans-focused knowledge exchange and discourse platform and, and, and performing arts platform. And I, I run that with my collaborator, Joseph Pierce, um, who's a Cherokee scholar based in New York. And... Uh, we had a, a wonderful keynote event recently, which was a, a, a conversation between, you know, two senior women and extremely respected cultural elders and, and artists, uh, Romaine Morton, who's a poet, and, and Nadi Simpson, who is a songwriter or has, has predominantly been a songwriter and has recently written a book. Yes, I know. And, um, you know, two incredible... Beautiful books. ...black writers, you yeah. know, yeah. And, and listening to the way that Nadi and Romaine talked... It was, I don't want to get into paraphrasing it because I really just want people yeah. to go and listen to, listen to them. It's not, it's, it's not yeah. for me to, to paraphrase this incredibly powerful deep yarn they had. But it reminded me the way that they kind of frame it between themselves is, is talking about story and the way that the story shows up and talking about story in metaphysical terms, Right. And story as being something which exists <laughs> independently of the artist and that the artist is a conduit for, right? And that's, a, that's an idea which is very close to my bones as an Aboriginal person. That's something that I, you know, that's, that is truthful to the way that I work or the way that I aim to work as an artist. But it was just very, it was just very powerful and very grounding for me to hear Nadia and Remain articulated in such clear terms. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I think about a lot. And I think for me, and, and I feel like there's a lot of Aboriginal artists I know who relate to this, like we don't really have, or shall we say the, the, this, this kind of idea of multidisciplinarity or interdisciplinarity is also a largely colonial notion, right? Because most of the black artists I know, most of the queer artists I know, most of the queer artists I know are, are wildly interdisciplinary. And, and that's just part of what it means to show up for story or show up for image or show up for the work in whatever way that particular story is asking to be told or that particular song is asking to be sung, mm-hmm. you know. Um, that is a metaphysical practice in many ways. And for me, 
I have a certain range of tools that are available to me, a certain range of practices that I engage in. And I know when an, if an idea comes, I know if it wants to be a performance or if it wants to be a story or if it wants to be a poem or if it wants to be whatever, you know, different ideas take shape differently and move through the body and the spirit differently and concretize in the world differently. And you often don't know until quite late how something's going to come out or what it's going to be. Yeah. Okay, so it's Permafrost. Um, was it a book that, a collection of stories that you wrote during COVID or was it something you No, about? most of Permafrost is, is is more than 10 years old. Oh, wow. Okay, started, talk to me I, about that. I started writing Permafrost when I was 19. Oh, so okay. The very first story in Permafrost was actually a story called Needlepoint, which has since been, I, this, this final draft of the collection, the one that's finally been published, about I think five stories have actually been removed from the original collection because I just kind of decided that they had a, a home in another future mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. they didn't belong in this in this particular cycle of stories. Yep. And one of them was a story called Needlepoint, which is very short. It's only a thousand words. Uh, and that was one of the first stories that I wrote as a student at UTS. I was in the in the UTS writers program back in the day. And uh, I, you know, I, I think I wrote that story for a workshop at uni. And that was the first story of what then would become Permafrost. And I think I wrote the title story after that. So I was about 20, 21 or 22 when I wrote the title story. I'm 37 now. Mm. And then I sort of, I finished the bulk of that collection by the time I was 24. And then I moved to Berlin and I stopped writing. Um, I did, no, that's not, that's not true. I didn't stop writing. I stopped writing fiction for a range of reasons. And I, I sort of shelved, I shelved the project for a very, very long time. Mm. And I came back to it about 10 years later and I pulled the manuscript out of a drawer and was like, this has got to go somewhere or it's going to go in the bin, you know, this, this, you know, unfinished projects, every artist has them, you know, I, and they, they sort of, they become an energy suck after a while and you have to either release them into the world or burn them, you know, it's like, you have to, (laughs) you have to make a call when something's been, when something's been hanging around your neck for 10 years or longer, you have to kind of make a call whether it's, whether it's going to go out into the world or not. And uh, I think I I had sort of just moved back to Australia. When was this? Maybe three or four years ago. I pulled the manuscript out of a, out of a drawer and was like, okay, now your time, your time has come, baby. Do it. Now <laughs> and, or never. Um, yeah, now <laughs> or never. And, and I submitted it to, I really only got it out of the, out just so I could get my fingers back in it again and, and, and see if there was anything there that was worth pushing to completion. Mm. And, um, I entered in, into the into the Kill Your Darlings Prize really only with the intention of giving myself an incentive to to get muddy with the manuscript again, and then to my great surprise, it won. And yeah, that that has then led on a path to its its publication. Now, um, it's still been a pretty long road, even between that point and now, because the manuscript was in a a very different. I've, I've done fairly extensive rewrites on the manuscript through COVID, and also finished the last story in the collection, which is a story called Playback, which is a, a bit of a break from the rest of the the rest of the stories in the collection. In that it's much longer, uh, it's structurally quite different. It plays with time in very different ways. In many ways, it's a more mature story than the other other work in the collection, but it's also 
I I have I have strong but ambivalent feelings about that work, but I finished that during COVID, and well, I finished the rewrites during COVID, and and I've worked with my editor Aviva, who's wonderful, and yeah, she's wonderful. She's absolutely yeah. wonderful. Well, I'm going to say congratulations, and I was just I was looking at all the accolades you got. One from a guy that I've got a huge crush on, Christos <laughs> Chalkos. Major. Oh, Christos's endorsement was lovely. I mean, all of the endorsements were amazing. He said I was genuinely unnerving. I'm going to read it because we'll end on (laughs) that. But you know not everybody gets this. You know this, (laughs) right? So it's great work. This is what Christos says. Uh, This collection of spectral stories is genuinely unnerving, genuinely exhilarating. The writing is bold, sly, perverse, and reading permafrost is akin to being wide awake in a dream. Love that. <laughs> the stories start possessing you as a reader, eerie and astonishing in equal measure. Now, he doesn't take things lightly. He's a really <laughs> serious guy. <laughs> so that's uh, tremendous uh, praise. Um, I've loved this conversation, SJ. Really have enjoyed it. I've learned so much. Thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.